0: welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today our guest is Kimberly Daniels. Driven by a higher purpose of transformational leadership that changes the world, Dr. Kimberly Daniels is a change agent at heart. She is passionate about making small impacts that have a ripple effect in making lives better. Kimberly learned about foresight while studying for a doctoral degree in strategic leadership at Regent University. At the time, she lived and worked in Ghana, West Africa. Kimberly created for herself the role of community development practitioner with a US based nonprofit and relocated to Burkina Faso in West Africa. There she introduced permaculture, a forward thinking systems approach to agricultural sustainability and rainwater harvesting to small farmers. Kimberly directs Foresighted Leadership Group, which brings together foresight leadership as Interdependent core competencies for strategic thinking, planning, and decision making. As a member of the Association of Professional Futurists, she enjoys helping shape place based futures characterised by transformation, holism, sustainability, and resilience. Welcome to FuturePod, Kimberly.
1: Uh, thank you, Peter. Excited to be a guest on FuturePod.
0: <laughs> I'm excited to be talking to you, Kimberly. So question one, Kimberly, the the Kimberly Daniels story. So what is the Kimberly Daniels story?
1: Okay. So part of that, that story is um, integrated into my bio, but I uh, can definitely go ahead and, and share it. So Peter, I had uh, started my third year of a doctoral program at Region University, um, and that's where I met uh, Jay Gary. Um, who's the current chair of the Association of Professional Futurists or uh, APF and then at the time he was my professor in that program yep i you know needed to choose a minor concentration and was considering strategic foresight yeah you know, i was just learning about it it was something so new to me and so different from anything that i had studied before and i remember wondering whether it would ever really makes sense to me, or if I even do well in my classes. (laughs) And So uh, something interesting about me, which both drives me and then also sometimes really frustrates me about myself, is that I'm not one to back away from a reasonable challenge, (laughs) tough as it may be. And then I saw the strategic foresight concentration, uh, not only as a challenge, but also as an opportunity to reach beyond what I thought I was capable of intellectually and professionally, if it meant developing skills that could help me make a difference in the lives of people in West Africa. Uh, So at the time, I was uh, teaching at a private university in Ghana, but had envisioned working outside of the classroom and alongside of those in Africa, uh, wanting to see better futures for themselves, their families, their uh, local communities, and you know, and also their nations. The thing about Jay, when he was my professor, is that he offered students in the doctoral program a, a chance to learn more about the foresight field by engaging with professionals in the community. Yep. Yeah, he would work it out for students to attend uh, for free uh, the annual conference hosted by the World Future Society, you know, the WFS. Did you ever attend that, that conference?
0: Yes, I went to many of them, Kimberly. Okay,
1: so we may have crossed paths. And so the, the way that we could attend for free is that we could volunteer uh, to serve um, in the conference in some way. Yep. So the, the year I attended the uh, WFS conference, I volunteered to assist Peter Bishop for one of his sessions. And i had only known Peter... From uh, some of my course readings. And then Jay really talked him up. Uh, so I thought, okay, you know, here's an open door for me to learn from a futurist, you know, a big name in the field. And the funny thing is that I don't remember much of Peter's session that day, but uh, he also doesn't remember me from back then. <laughs> but, <laughs> but since then, uh, Peter and I, you know, um, he does know me now, let's just say it that way. <laughs> so anyway, As I was trying to decide whether to minor in strategic foresight as part of my doctoral program, it made absolute sense to me to reach out to Peter while visiting Houston later that summer. And I thought maybe, you know, he could help me have a better understanding of foresight because I was still like on the fence about it and nervous. Uh, Peter was like more than willing to help me. And even though I, I wasn't one of his students. And honestly, I had considered choosing a different minor concentration, uh, thinking I could you know, simply complete the professional certificate in foresight at the University of Houston once I graduated from the doctoral program. So I emailed Peter. He responded. I, I met him on U- University of Houston's campus. And what he shared was really enlightening. And that's the day when I knew I wanted to uh, develop a foresight competency. And I'll say that if I were featured as a character in an APF or Foresight comic book, Peter would be one of my heroes. <laughs> and I'm looking at your, you know, your, your, is it your meme or something? And it says Captain Foresight. And I think that's awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The students gave me that when I finished up. I'm just curious, Kimberly, what, looking back, what do you think it was in Peter? What did he say or what was triggered in you that said, yes, yes, I want to do this?
1: Gosh, Peter, that was like a decade ago. So I can't remember exactly what he said. I just remember him being very approachable, very willing to, I mean, Peter, I think the one thing about Peter that I really love about him is that he is an educator there was nothing in it for him i mean he you know wasn't trying to recruit me as a student you know i wasn't paying him i mean he was just really wanting to help me learn and i i think that and just the way that he explained it and and he took his time i you know we were probably um there for maybe an hour maybe two but whatever it was that he shared it it just really made more sense to me because i really wanted to know okay What's the advantage of me studying strategic foresight? The whole explanation about, you know, living and working in, in West Africa at the time and some of the things that I wanted to do and some of the, the, the options that I had. Yeah, I, I think it was just not only the way he explained it, but just how, how kind he was, how, again, how approachable and how willing he was uh, just to help me, you know, work through that in my, in my mind.
0: Mm. You yeah, know, I certainly found it when I was finding my way through it, Kimberley, I found the generosity of people in the community was was amazing.
1: Yeah. And he was he was very generous with his time. And I so appreciated that. And yeah, I, I think that's one reason why to this day, you know, uh, he and I are friends. <laughs> and I, I think we would have been friends anyway. <laughs> but but yeah, Peter, he's uh, yeah, he's he he would be one of my heroes. So um, after, you know, I had that conversation with Peter, there was like, I had this great trepidation, but also like great anticipation for what I could, could learn and what I could do with, you know, the strategic foresight, minor concentration. So, uh, so that's what I chose to study and, and did that from a leadership perspective. Yep. So by the time I graduated uh, with my doctoral degree, I had transitioned from uh, Ghana to Burkina Faso. I don't know, I, uh, I guess I, I, I chose to be, you know, a hero as uh, some there might say, you know, for small farmers wanting to change their circumstances and see better farming results. It's probably not a hero thing to, to claim that you're a hero, but <laughs> you know, I've heard some of their stories, you know, and that's the, the one thing is that uh, because they're, you know, they're still there in Burkina Faso, you know we don't get to really hear their voices. I've heard them share with me about the difference that i that I made in their lives and and it was you know it was kind of scary for me because I was there by myself trying to do this great big thing that I'd never done before but i I thought it was really important you know so i I wanted to to help small farmers I wanted to, them to see better farming experiences and see better farming results but for me. It wasn't about teaching them how to be better farmers. You know, I knew very little about farming. You know, Peter, I <laughs> I grew up in a city and, you know, I didn't even like getting my hands dirty. I, I remember um, the house where I grew up in, um, in the backyard, we had a cherry tree. And uh, every summer, you know, I remember my mom sending me out there to pick cherries so she could bake my dad a cherry pie. Yep. And I hated going to pick those cherries because they were all squishy under my feet. And um, and I was just like, nope, I'm not doing this. And I didn't like dirt under my fingernails, you know, nothing. You know, I, I didn't know anything about farming, um, really didn't want to practice farming. But, you know, the thing is, is that the, the small farmers that I worked with, they were the experts. I did know about, you know, how they could approach farming from a sustainability perspective uh, through a systems-oriented d- design approach called permaculture. I also believe that I could be a catalyst for helping them change their futures. I had conducted some research while I was doing my doctorate degree, uh, so doing some, some research on Burkina, and then I came across a number of forecasts That still depicted Burkina as a low income country characterized by uh, low human development and poverty, you know, 20, 30, you know, some 40 years into the future. And I thought, no, not on my watch. You know, what each of those forecasts had in common was the fact that Burkina's main industry was and, you know, and, and, and has continued to be farming. Uh, It's also a landlocked country, Sub-Saharan Africa. You know, it's impacted to a greater extent by uh, extreme climate changes and other disruptions, uh, more so, you know, than Ghana. So I reasoned that if I could start at the household and community levels and help small farmers to, you know, yeah, see better farming results, but more importantly, to help them work their way out of poverty uh, through sustainable farming and sustainable living, um, that maybe that could somehow trickle up to impact the nation as a whole. And so all of this was just me putting into practice a theory that I had developed uh, during my doctoral program. So it was part of my you know final project and research and all that. And so I was just like, okay, well, this isn't going to just be a paper for me or just project just to get through this program I really want to put this into practice and then you know maybe if I could do that then you know maybe 20, 30, 40 years from now we could see a Burkina Faso that has you know defied those forecasts of ongoing poverty and achieved the first two sustainable development goals and, and perhaps several more. Right. So for me, you know, helping to change the lives and the futures of people in Burkina Faso needed to start with changing the narrative. And then to change the narrative, I had to have their buy-in. You know, they needed to think differently and and work differently. Um, And then they also needed to own what it meant to work towards more desirable and preferable futures uh, for themselves while I was there, I didn't use the word foresight or any other technical terms. I mean, first of all, I had to learn French. And then most of the people that I worked with, they, some people uh, understood French and could speak it very well and understand it. And some people couldn't. So I had to learn a uh, trade language called Jula. And so in the Jula language, there are, you know, well first of all, trying to translate from English to French, you know, that's, You know, that's one thing, but then trying to translate from either uh, English to Jula or French to Jula, you know, Jula is just one of those languages that just, it it reached a certain point and, and then, you know, didn't develop much after that. And so they, you know, very limited words and concepts. So I, you know, I didn't see the importance of using the word foresight or technical terms to try to get them thinking about and and acting with the long-term future in mind. I simply challenged them to have a vision for the kind of future they wanted to create for their children and their children's children and and so on. So together, yeah, that's what we've been working towards, a future that is not characterized by poverty or poor health or a shorter-than-average lifespan, but one that's truly transformational and holistic. And I can tell you to this day that a number of those that I trained uh, in Brooklyn, in Burkina, have worked their way
0: out of poverty. Right. So how long would you say you've been in that project for?
1: So I was on the ground full time for six years um, before returning back to the US. And so here's a really neat story. I think it was the last year that I was there. One of the the persons that I had trained, you know, came to visit me. And uh, and he said, Kimberly, I want to thank you for inviting me to participate in this training you know, before this training, I was very poor. He said, but now I'm no longer poor. And then he proceeded by explaining why he uh, no longer considered himself as poor. So before the training, I mean, he could barely fix the the roof on, on his home. Because, you know, in, in the rainy seasons, when it does rain, you know, sometimes, I mean, that the, the rain can just be really intense. And so you hear a lot of stories about people's you know, either their homes collapsing or their, their roofs collapsing. And so he was struggling, you know, trying to keep up with maintenance on, on his home and was struggling trying to send his kids to school. But after going through the training that I brought uh, to Burkina and then and putting some of those things into practice, he started a whole new business. And then from that income, not only was he able to, uh, he didn't just repair his, you know, his, his, his home uh, that he had problems with. He actually, I think he said he built a new home and then he also um, was able to send his kids to private school.
0: Wow,
1: wow, Yeah. And so that was just something that, I mean, it just really, you know, touched my heart. It was just like, you know, wow. And, and for him to share that story with me, because otherwise if they didn't share their stories, then I wouldn't have known um, how much of an impact that you know that training and that and the learning um that they, that they had you know how much that impacted their lives and and helping them make different decisions so yeah so that's just one of the stories
0: that's awesome that's awesome
1: yeah and and several others also um you know they uh, started businesses and and worked their way out of poverty as well so um that's something i'm really truly uh, proud of and just so blessed that um that i got to do something like that that's awesome
0: is that program continuing?
1: The ones that I trained, they are continuing it. But I did have to leave the country yep. since I was the uh, the one that brought the training. Then, with me not being there, then you know, I can't continue it unless I you know do something you know remotely. Yep. You know, made sure that they had the resources, and um, and so they have continued doing it. And I continue to hear stories. And the really neat thing about it is that. Before I did the training, so what I did was um, the the, did the first time I did the training, we did it over a period of of eight months altogether. So and then I did it in three different areas of the country. We we'll started off with two different areas of the country. So I would do it in in uh, the area where I lived, and that was twice a month. So you know two Saturdays a month, and then during the month I would hop on a bus. And this was a bus that was no air conditioning, <laughs> you yeah. uh, know, the, you know, just red dirt, you know, coming in through windows if they were open, you know, so by the time you you you, you left that bus, I mean, you were just covered in red dirt. So, you know, get on this bus and initially it, it, it took five hours to get, you know, go one way. Um, but then uh, there was a point where it started, you know, taking uh, maybe seven or eight hours, um, you know, for a one-way trip. Uh, so I would leave on a uh, Monday and then I would do the training uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And then I would come back, um, you know, take the bus back uh, to where I lived on a Friday and so in part of the training, we had classroom discussions and talked about the theories. But then, you know, we went someone's farmland and we actually put things into practice. I had rented a house there. And so for the class that was in my community, I was able to use my front courtyard as a practice and demonstration site. And so we we got out there and <laughs> We you know we just uh, made organic compost and organic fertilizer and just all this stuff and so before uh, I did that training, um, oh, and I also took them to Ghana yeah the, I, that first year uh, we got on a bus and I think there was maybe t- thirteen of us or so. Um, we got on a bus and twenty something hours later arrived in Ghana and uh, where they have permaculture center and so there they got to learn more advanced training or they got to have more advanced training and and learn more in different techniques and uh, so anyway when I did that training I would say most of them did not have their own farmlands but after the training and you know maybe it took a few years I would say Oh, gosh, I, I can't even tell you the number, but I've been hearing about it, that uh, they have been purchasing farmlands and practicing this because they know how important it is. And yeah, and they want to, wow. to continue uh, with this, you know, sustainable farming, sustainable living. But then they also want to teach their children, which I thought was just really, really important and, and exciting for me because they said before then, their children had no interest in farming because... They only knew the traditional way of farming, Mm. Um, but here they started learning about, you know, and it wasn't just about farming. It was, you know, how they could, you know, have better health, um, how they could just uh, start different businesses, you know, just a a number of different things. So it was, you know, combined education and agriculture and community development and all of that. And so, um, so yes, it, it has continued. I am, well, I had wanted to go back this year to do more advanced training, um, but of course that didn't happen. And so my hope is that in the next two
0: years, I will get to go back. Has it changed your attitude to <laughs> getting your hands dirty? <laughs> uh, so
1: yeah, yeah, I, you know, I still like to use gloves when, when I can, but the funny thing is that, you know, yes, I will get out there and I will pick up a, a, a farming tool, uh, but Okay, so the truly hilarious thing is that anytime I was I was with the Burkina Bay, and uh, so that's what you call the people of Burkina Faso, so I was with the Burkina Bay, I would pick up a tool and, you know, um, it, the, it was so funny when I would pick up a pickaxe and then somebody would come and grab it out of my hand.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: I didn't know if, if they were doing that you know to be polite and you know just you know because here I am you know, a, you know American woman and maybe they you know they, they they were just being polite or maybe you just thought I couldn't handle a pickaxe or a machete
0: <laughs> I can understand him taking a machete out of your hands fantastic that's great So question two, I ask the guests to talk about a method or a framework or an idea that they think is central to their practice. And so what do you want to talk to the community about?
1: So yeah, in terms of of frameworks, I don't know if I would say a particular framework that's essential to my practice, because I've worked with different futurists. And so they they use different frameworks. And, and um, if I'm working uh, with them, then those are the frameworks that that, that I learn and, and that I use. I can tell you that mostly when I've explored the future of a topic or an issue, uh, I, I've used Houston Foresight's framework Foresight approach. Yep. And so that accommodates different research-oriented tools, and then, you know, past and, and present assessments. You know, you you do a, you know trend, scenario, and implications analyses, and then you put together these plans or recommendations for responding to the future as it emerges.
0: Can you maybe talk through like a case you've done and how you've used the Houston framework to kind of help you do and deliver the piece of work?
1: Um, okay, yes. So I can talk to you. So right now, I'm finishing up a one-year commitment as a 2020 APF Emerging Fellow. Um, and I've used uh, Houston's um, Houston Foresight's framework, Foresight Approach, to explore uh, my topic. That topic is, will world power pivot from the West to Eurasia's heartland by 2050? It's about, you know, will world power pivot from the West to the East? I decided that I, you know, I wanted to use the, um, the, you know, framework foresight approach um, because that was the one that I was most familiar with. Did a historical analysis, a current assessment. I also talked about uh, different change drivers. And then um, most recently I did four four scenarios, four different scenarios Uh with the Houston Houston Foresight's Framework Foresight approach, I've tended to use uh, four scenario archetypes yep. when creating my scenarios. And so um, the, the ones that I've used mostly and that, um, you know, I say Andy Hines tends to use is... Uh, continuation, collapse, new equilibrium, and transformation. Yep. Andy is, uh, he developed the new equilibrium uh, scenario archetype. Uh, and I think uh, his, that was based on work that Jim Dater, you know, had, had done. So in some ways, it's been a bit challenging for me. I had trouble, you know, tr- articulating differences between that new equilibrium scenario and then a transformational one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm an experiential learner, you know, I learn by doing. And so even though it's been really challenging, I'm, I'm kind of forcing myself to become good at it through practice. And so that's why I chose to use it this year during that, uh, you know, the emerging fellow fellowship program. Yep.
0: The four scenarios that Jim Data originally had, and obviously Andy's based the model on, Mm -hmm. obviously our continuation, collapse, transformation and discipline. Can you maybe just talk through the new equilibrium archetype as you now learned it and differentiated it from transformation? I mean, you know, what is this archetype? Because again, its original placement in Jim's model would have been the discipline archetype.
1: Okay, the way that I have, understood the new equilibrium and then the way that I've described it. It's a scenario that, you know, where you have these uh, competing or opposing forces that challenge the current stability of things um, until those competing forces reach some sort of compromise. And then when they reach that compromise then they you know it kind of restores balance uh in a way that's that's different than before
0: okay so so continuation is the existing structures going forward into the future collapse is the failure of the existing structures right right so yes whereas the new equilibrium is actually again is kind of taking a position of actually a new sense of balance so then i again i now I see your dilemma. How is that different to transformation?
1: Right, and and so again, it's 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 taken just uh, practice and working through it, where I'm, I'm I'm having to say, okay, you know, if we're talking about trans, because with transformation, you know, we're talking about a fundamental change um, that's characterized by you know new standards or new norms, um, and so yeah, so how is that you know different from a new equilibrium? In terms of new equilibrium and transformation, so when I think of new equilibrium, for example, I think of, you know, like maybe you might have, if you're talking about competing forces, okay, it could be two different stakeholders that have a significant interest and and maybe influence in and, and the future of, of, of something. And so they're, you know, each kind of vying for what they want. Um, and so, you know, eventually they, you know, they, they reach this compromise and, you know, and then balance is restored. And, you know, it's just, it's just different. <laughs> but other than that, it's really tough for me to explain. Andy can explain it better. <laughs> Thanks,
0: Kim. The third question is the one where I ask, Kimberly, human being, citizen of the world, what are the emerging futures that interest you and get your attention? But also, what are the ways you actually, if you like, ha- handle the changes that are around you? Because of course, change comes at us and it can it can make people feel disempowered. Mm-hmm. So how do you wrestle with that? All right. Let me just kind of go back a little
1: bit to your previous question. So in, in terms of using the the Houston Foresight Framework Foresight approach, um, and then I'm also currently working part of a team that's using four different archety- archetypes that's de- developed by the Institute for Alternative Futures. Uh, so that one. It's uh, the expectable, challenging, aspirational, top down, and aspirational bottom up futures. Yep. But if I were to, to have a favorite tool or framework, I would say that it's gaming. Um, and this is something that it's, it's not new to me, but I am really seeing uh, just some, some real positives around it. So in September, I had the opportunity to facilitate a session on the future of diversity in the foresight field and futures. And as part of that Collaborate 2020 session, we played a game called Dreams and Disruptions, uh, and that was developed by Philippines-based Center for Engaged Foresight. I've played other Foresight games, but I think playing that Dreams and Disruptions one just really sparked a desire to to create games that I can use, you know, to address poverty, but then also to address, you know, some other issues. So I think it's When you, you know, an approach like gaming is, it allows you to to dialogue and, and, you know, work with with other people around these difficult issues, you know, in a fun, but, you know, yet a thought-provoking way. For that, you know, Collaborate 2020 session uh, that I facilitated, I was joined by Sherman Cruz, um, who's the founder and executive director of Center for Engaged Foresight, and then also Lonnie Brooks. And he's a communications uh, professor at uh, California State uh, East Bay. Lonnie is also creative director for the Oakland Hub of Black Speculative Arts Movement. And then um, he's a co-executive producer of the Afrofuturist podcast with Ahmad Best. So, and the reason why I wanted to bring that up is that through the, the interview with Lonnie that I learned more about Afrofuturism. And his work towards democratizing futures and then developing a forecasting practice that isn't racist but is inclusive of black peoples indigenous peoples and other uh, peoples of color yep. so his work just really resonates with my desire to see emerging futures for americans and for others around the world that are you know not only inclusive but which are also positive and and transformational for people of color, and this is something that excites me, you know, and it scares me, you know. I, I'm uh, it excites me because I'm a change agent and I'm thrilled to do my part. I see myself as a think and do futurist, and I really sincerely want to help to make the world a better place for for everyone, and that includes the environment. And then. It scares me because there's a lot of change, uh, you know, for the good that I want to influence and and that I want to see happen. So, you know, if if we're talking about emerging futures, do I sense around me, as a Black American woman, I'm not okay with what's happening in the U.S. as it concerns racism and inequities and injustices. You know, I come across projections of the future um, that forecast ongoing situations of poor education, lack of affordable housing, poor health, uh, low income, high unemployment, community redlining, and all these things for people of color and, you know, and especially for Blacks and Latinos. And, you know, and I think, no, you know, similar to when I was in Africa, you know, no, not on my watch. So I think I can, and I really want to be a part of helping to rewrite the narratives of for people of color uh, here in the U.S. You know, so one of the things that you and I were, were talking about before we started the recording was about COVID. And so we, we've been hearing for months how COVID has disproportionately impacted uh, people of color here in the, in the U.S. So when I hear the COVID slogan that, you know, we're all in this together, in my mind, it's going to take all of us together working towards inclusive futures that are transformational, holistic, preferable, and desirable for all. Mm. So that's one of the things that, that, yeah, that's, you know, the emerging futures that, that I'm since making. And that's something that I would love to, to work on more in, yeah in the near future.
0: I ask, I mean, again, I'm not asking you to necessarily judge the community, but more or less comment. As you say, you are both a female and African American. But as you encountered the Futures and Foresight community and the things it works with, are there things that we as a community could be doing to become better ourselves at actually managing and working with this awareness?
1: Well, I think, and thank you for asking the question. I think awareness is the first part of it. How I got to do that uh, collaborate twenty twenty session, I had actually uh, was asked to write an article for the, the APF's Compass newsletter, and, and I was, you know, told that, um, you know, by the editor at the time that, you know, they wanted more you know, just a diversity of, uh, of contributors. Um, but then he also then proposed that I write about diversity in the foresight field. And initially, I just thought, no, that's just that's not something I want to tackle. <laughs> and then I only had like, you know, when he reached out to me, um, the article was actually due in in five days. And I was like, I can't do this, you know, five days, but then he extended it, you know, for 10 days. And so, you know, I was thinking, all right, um, I know as a a Black American woman and futurist that I don't see too many people in our field that are like me. And I'm like, okay, why, why is that? I'm still, I still consider myself to be very new to the field and, and, and practice. And so I, I, I thought, okay, maybe um, I could you know, talk to some other people. And so I decided to interview four people. Uh, so I interviewed Sherman Cruz and Peter Bishop, Jim Dater, and, and Lonnie Brooke, and just got to hear their perspectives on diversity. And that was just really illuminating, but I think just hearing from from several of them and, you know, and just for them to be able to say that the foresight field has been predominantly Western, white, and male. And I was just like, wow, you know, so they were just really honest in that and, you know, and to hear about how each of them have approached it to help bring in diversity or for the Foresight community and for the APF and other Foresight organizations to be characterized by diversity. So that for me was was just really interesting. So again, I would say just that awareness. I think it's one thing for me to say, oh, you know, we there's not a lot of diversity in the Foresight field. But when you have someone who is, you know, he's Western, white, and male, and then he says that you know that the field is is not characterized or has a, has not tended to be characterized by diversity for everyone to to listen to and and maybe to just say, "Hey, yeah, maybe there 's something to that, so I think awareness is uh, the first part of it, but I also think just a willingness to to say, "Hey, you know you know once we have that awareness, um, then as we are working on projects or we are articulating or narrating scenarios of the future, then just really making sure that we are thinking about all of the people that are, I mean, to the point that we can, that all the people in our uh, society are represented in those positive and transformational futures. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Futures work by its nature is privileged in the sense that you have to have a certain amount of how would you say you've got to have some some capacity to actually think about what's next? Mm-hmm. If you're a hundred percent in surviving the now, it's hard to imagine how you've got capacity to imagine things being different.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty easy for me to imagine, you know, something that's different. <laughs> you know, I want to be included in in those you know, positive and transformational futures. But when I don't see myself included or or feel included, then it's just like, oh yeah, there's something that's missing. I don't know. I I, I appreciate the work that everyone is doing. And and I don't think, and similar to to something that that Peter Bishop shared with me during that interview, is you know I don't think it's been intentionally that way. Maybe, maybe it was, but I don't want to think that, but I I do want to to think um, and to believe that as we go forward, that now that we are faced with you know the knowledge and we are are more aware that that futures have not tended to be inclusive, that you know maybe we can you know start doing things differently.
0: Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Thanks, Kimberly. fourth question the communication question how does Kimberly explain to other people what she does when those people don't necessarily understand what it is that Kimberly does
1: yeah so I will admit that I'm still working on that what I do share with people is that yeah I I work with others uh, whether Businesses, or communities, or governments, or military, or whatever—I, you know—I work with others in exploring uh, how emerging trends and and patterns of change could impact different ways of how the long-term future might unfold, and then that then allows them to make informed decisions present in preparation for
0: you know that future that unfolds, or to help shape a more preferable future. Hmm. What do you do in the face of resistance or cynicism? <laughs> okay, so this brings me to a funny story. <laughs> so several years ago,
1: when it was after I had already enrolled the master's uh, program at the University of Houston, um, so their foresight program, and I was trying to explain it to my mother. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> she had the oddest look on her face and then she uh, reminded me that I wasn't raised to have such beliefs. And I looked, and I said, I was like, what are you talking about? And then, and then it hit me. Well, she thought foresight was, you know, some hocus pocus, crystal ball, astrology practice. So, she, <laughs> so I guess she thought, you know, it involved psychic, re- psychic readings and tarot cards and all that. And so she was like, I didn't raise you like that. Mom, you know, like, you know, foresight is not about that. And so I actually had to show her some of my work. And so at the time I was interning with an organization in the education space, and I had written some scenarios that were posted as blogs. And so once she read the blogs, she was like, Oh, okay. She's like, Yeah, I'm not sure I understand everything that you wrote, but you're pretty smart. <laughs> I was like, you know, gee, thanks, mom.
0: (laughs) I think mothers are a great challenge to our ability to explain what it is we do because, of course, we also carry to a degree their hopes for our future. Mm -hmm. And uh, the notion that we are doing something that is very different to what they might have done Mm -hmm. is always challenging to both explain to them... That we are a different person, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though we are their child.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, both of my parents, you know, they, they worked full time um, outside of the home. And it was just that typical typical of the industrial age um, and working for 30, 40 years, however many years until you retired, um, you know, that's what you did. And so, you know, I was definitely different. You know? <laughs> You know, here I was like, you know, had, had all this education. It's like, yeah, I'm going to go work in Africa. <laughs> and they were like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Right. And, and so it was a, and, and I guess I know that, that uh, most parents, you know, they, they want, you know, good things and better things for their children, you know, better than what they had. And, you know, and yes, I, you know, I, I will admit, I had more opportunities and, and more choices, but in having more opportunities and choices, then I could make that choice to say, Hey, I am going to give a part of my life. And, you know, and I've been so blessed, I'm going to give that back and, and help, you know, bless other people. And, you know, and I wanted to do that in, in Africa. And so I got to do that. I I think maybe some people have wondered, you know, well, where are your things? And it's like, you know, your material, material things, you have all this education and you're so smart or whatever, you know, why don't you have more? And you know, for me, it's it's not about that. I think it's and one thing I really like about foresight. You know, yes, you know, you can work with clients and and earn an income, um, but then you can also use it to help other people. And and that's one of the things that that I've wanted to do is is use it. You know, yeah, I know I need income. <laughs> you know, yeah, but I I want to use you know, my foresight competency to, to help people. And, and, and like I said before, to really help make the world a better place. And so not everyone understands that, but I, I think maybe the more that I, that I do it and can work with people and then just help them work towards those transformational futures, then be, you know, more people will see the value of foresight and say, Hey, you know, yeah, this is, this is a competency that we need to.
0: So, Kimberly, on behalf of the FuturePod community, Tank, thank you for taking some time out to share your story and your ideas.
1: Peter, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, again, I really appreciate you inviting me to be a guest on FuturePod and, uh, yeah, I look forward to, um, to meeting up with you again or, or others. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.